Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. When it came to sex and pornography, the culture wars used to be fairly simple. Conservatives wanted less and progressives wanted more. But developments in recent years have massively complicated that simple cultural equation. Feminists continue to disagree about pornography. Abstract theories of gender have replaced sex on many campuses. And the Me Too movement, at its radical edges, has lent an oddly puritanical aspect to progressive ideology. Perhaps no one person symbolizes all of these cultural twists and contradictions more than Buck Angel, a biologically female trans man who became a pioneer in the world of pornography before moving on to a career in human rights, public speaking, and a new LGBT marijuana company. Meanwhile, on social media, Buck Angel has become a leader among a faction of transgender men and women who have become repelled by the increasingly shrill activist message that often is being promoted in their name. In August, he joined me by phone from his home in Los Angeles. Here are excerpts from our conversation. I try to prepare for these interviews by looking at the history of the interviewee, looking at what they've written, what they've appeared in, and I'm not sure there's ever been anyone who is harder to have their career summarized than you. You've done... <laughs> awesome. Well, <laughs> you've done a lot. You know, you've also pitched from both sides of the culture war, which we'll yep. get into later. But when you <laughs> when you meet someone at a dinner party or something, what's the 30-second description of how you describe yourself? It is difficult because I do so many things. But I'd say what I first do is I say I'm a human rights activist. Because I, that's pretty much the basis of everything that I think could, could be put in a nutshell. Because it is difficult. I started in pornography. Then from there, I create you know sexual wellness products. Then from there, I became a public speaker. Also, I want to say, depending on the type of person I'm speaking to, that also has a sort of effect on where I decide to tell the person. Because some people might not be very accepting of my pornographic work. And then it shuts down the conversation. So pretty much human rights lets me open the door for having a conversation, if that makes sense. Let me ask you about not porn in particular, but the afterlife of porn actors. You hear about porn actors, especially women, who become activists against pornography, or they mm -hmm. become religious, or or they become like B or C list celebrities like Ron Jeremy did for a while. Mm -hmm. Is there a subculture of post-porn individuals using what they learned through the porn industry to do other things? Well, that's a great question, too. So, so here's what I got to say. As you know, pornography has such a stigma that it's a literally across the whole world. You can go anywhere, and the minute you say you work in pornography, it's like you are – you know, you're like the worst person in the world. So that said, it is very difficult to move from pornography into – activism into worldwide activism into many of the things I do now 
which I infiltrated the world. I'm a mainstream public speaker who travels the world, speaks to corporate, speaks. That is very rare. I'll tell you that. It's very, very rare. That said, many people who decide not to do porn anymore pretty much go, go into basically maybe being married, having kids, going to work at Walmart. A lot of people in my industry do not necessarily go from, from porn to mainstream acting. It's a very difficult thing to do. You have a stigma on you. And so that said, I don't know very many people, to be honest with you. And the people that I do know pretty much go into like queer activism because my pornography is centered around trans and centered around LGBT. So it wasn't necessarily mainstream in the sense of what you see Ron Jeremy or even Tracy Lords, right? She's another porn person who pretty much went from pornography into mainstream and did mainstream films. So it's a difficult space to get into. But I think because I still talk about sex and specifically within the transgender community, and I specifically created products, uh, sexual wellness products uh, to help trans people, you know, deal with their bodies. So I, I use my pornography to create activism, to talk about how important it is to talk about trans male bodies. So if you see mine wasn't just regular quote unquote pornography, I sort of use pornography in a, already my platform in a, in a way that I could create a space in the world where people could see bodies like mine in a sexual space. And I call it sexual wellness because I know what happens is people, the minute you say pornography, people shut down, they don't want to hear it. So, so I guess to answer your question, there isn't really a lot of people in my industry, in the pornography industry that are able to transcend and get into a, a mainstream space. When I interview people who are trans, they also have very different stories about how they came to their gender dysphoria. In some cases, it's just something they were born with. Sometimes it, it comes out of trauma or there's a complex intermingling with issues of sexual orientation. It sounds like you had a very hard time with gender dysphoria when you were a teenager. And I think it wasn't until your late 20s that you were really able to deal with it as a result of your interaction with one particular therapist. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And remember, I'm 58 years old, and I transitioned 25 years ago. So I transitioned late, but I also transitioned when there was no internet, when there wasn't everything you see today was complete. I was on some level an experiment because both my doctors had never done uh, the transition with a transgender man before. So that said, yeah, it was a very difficult space to be in. You were sort of like the Danish girl of. <laughs> yes. No, but but actually, one of my one of my doctors, the one who actually started my hormone treatment, actually called me a guinea pig. He said, "I don't know what I'm doing. I've been working with transgender women, or tra we call it transsexual back in the day, transsexual women, and you know, I don't know what I'm doing. If you're willing to do this, you're going to basically be my guinea pig. That's totally the words that came out of his mouth." And I, you know, and I laugh at it and you can laugh too. I'm totally okay with that because on some level it is kind of crazy and scary, but I didn't have a choice. I had to do it. We had on the podcast, a trans software developer named Karina Cohn, mm. who lives in Indianapolis. She described what this community was like before the internet. Mm -hmm. The internet existed, but it was before the web. So she described these list servers and there was no graphics. You were mm. going off university mainframes. And she describes it actually as in some ways a better world because it was a smaller world. People looked out for each other. It wasn't as political. Oh my gosh, 100%. She's right on. I mean, I think the people like us who got to transition like her and I before all of this were are lucky on some level because we didn't have a lot of the pressure that's happening now. I think a lot of kids are being indoctrinated on some level. I think 
there's just this idea that trans is this happy space to be in. And, you know, I think that, yeah, we both her and I transitioned in a space that didn't have all of those. And I, I was around during like Yahoo groups and AOL groups that that was eventually after a year or two after transitioning. Those were the places I would go to try to at least find people like myself because it was almost impossible. On Twitter, you sometimes talk in a suitably anonymized form about people who come to you for advice about transition and other LGBT issues. And you recently talked about somebody who came to you for advice and then blocked you on Twitter before you could respond. Can you believe it? It was shocking. <laughs> Why does that happen? So so what happened is a person wrote me, which I get a lot of youngsters writing me because I am an elder in the community. And again, I transitioned 24 years ago. And, you know, I don't know everything. I only know my own transition. This is, I think, a lot of the problems that's happening within the transgender community is everybody thinks they know what's best for everybody else when it's a very personal space to transition. Everybody transitions maybe for different reasons. But that said, I had some Somebody write me and just block me after they wrote me this whole long thing that you know they wanted my advice and then I went to respond and they blocked me and I was like what so what I what I think happened is somebody told them about something about myself that I'm transphobic that I'm a turf that I'm you know whatever I'm true scum which are all for people who aren't who don't know all these crazy lingo it's these are just things within the transgender community there's a lot of like really pushback on many levels in the trans community. There's like different factions. This person believes that, that person believes it. So I think what happened is that person must have either been told not to talk to me after that and to block me because I'm a turf and that I'm a bad person and transphobic. This is how insane that whole community is. It's, it's crazy. And in Twitter land, of course, turf is a well-known mm. term of abuse, but in, mm. <laughs> in normal human civilization... <laughs> People I meet in my neighborhood wouldn't know what a TERF is. A TERF is, it's right. an acronym which stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminist, and that suggests somebody who maintains the distinction between a biological woman and somebody who is a trans woman, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and doesn't reduce them for all purposes into the same category. Did I get that right? Is that, is that how turf is? Yeah, I, I would say so. Now it's just become, you know, because there were people like that, that, you know, there are people who don't necessarily want trans women in spaces and that's a whole other conversation. But that said, they're flinging this turf thing around. Like, it's just like anyone who doesn't agree with you as a turf. That's why I, for now, now for me, it's a hate speech. It's not even in a, in a space that you're using it in order to create change. Now you're using it in order to bash people or to, you know, use it as a, as a means in a way to, to lower people to a space. And I don't agree with that at all. You talk about how because you transitioned from being a woman to being a man, you actually feel insulted by people who pretend away the distinction between women and trans women. Am, am I getting that right? Yes, you're very right. L let me explain why that is. Because I was born female, 100%. I will ne I'm biologically female. I mean, I don't. if any of your listeners look at me, you will never believe it, I think. I think I'm very lucky in my transition. But that said, I work hard on this, and I want people to see me as male. But in reality and logic and all the things that play into my transition, I was born female, which means that I transitioned to a man. Doesn't mean I'm biologically male. Doesn't mean that any space in the world, I, I want to look male. I want to act male. I want my ID to reflect that. But the reality is my body outside of this thing, which is called testosterone, which changed my whole, I am still 
physically female under this. So I resent the fact that there are people in my community trying to say biology doesn't exist and that when you transition that you're either male or female. You are in a sense where we want the world to see us, but we are still trans people. And when you start to erase that, you erase our experience. And our experience is very important, not only to the world, but also to medical. I can't just walk into the office and say, you know, hey, I'm a man, I need, you know, a prostate exam because that's not what I need and that's not what I'm going to get. And so when you start to sort of merge us into the biological space, you now are mixing everything up and this could be so dangerous on many levels. So I fight back against this idea that trans women are women and trans men are men. No, we are not. We are trans men and we are trans women and men are men and women are women and we need to keep that space it's very for me it's very important and i think for the future of the trans community it's very important and now a message from our commercial supporters at better help the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive at betterhelp.com you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe private online environment using secure video phone online chat or text Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. What you're saying, I think, for a lot of people would be common sense. Do you remember when it was in the world of activism that what you just told me started to become seen as controversial? I would say about five years ago. It started about maybe 10, but it really started to come into play five years ago. And I was like, you know, I wasn't really getting involved in it because I was like, oh, these are just a bunch of kids and it's going to, it's just nonsense when you say biology doesn't exist or trans people are born male and female. I was like, oh, this is just nonsense, you know, kid stuff. Then it just started picking up like more and more. And I couldn't sit still anymore and I could not be quiet around it. You know, I pick, I choose my battles, my friend. And so I have so many things that I fight against and on, on a daily basis, but I, I didn't want to put my voice in the space until I saw it becoming detrimental, that I needed to step up as a transsexual man, somebody who transitioned a long time ago, and somebody who doesn't deny my biology. And I think that it was important for me to get into that, that space. But it was like within five years, I just saw this huge amount of bashing and anger and not a place I come from and putting uh, pushing against, you know, biological coming up with this name cisgender, starting to sort of on some level push in a way that was not positive for me. I don't find that that's not building bridges. When I look at people who identify as transgender, 
I've often thought that that label just by itself encompasses a lot of different categories. Women who transition and men who transition, they often have very different stories. I've noticed, again, as an outsider, that some of the more militant and uncompromising voices from within the transgender community come from a very specific subsector of the transgender community, and it tends to be male to female transitioners who sometimes it's a little later in life and they often have very strongly articulated demands about how they need to enter female spaces. Is there debate within the transgender community about are we going to let that subfaction of the transgender community speak for us in terms of our demands or is there still a spirit of solidarity? Oh gosh, there's no solidarity at all. We have literally ripped our community apart. It is so sad for somebody like myself and I think the older generation because we really fought, like I said earlier, I was a guinea pig. And I wasn't a guinea pig just for myself. I was a guinea pig in order to get to a space where we could actually live in the world and people would understand us and we can start to have surgeries. And we could, I mean, my friend, my life is amazing. I have nothing to complain about. I like live my life so fully because I got to be the person I wanted to be. That's the important part of the message being a trans person is moving into the world. It is not that anymore. The trans community, and not the whole trans community, but a very, very big part of the trans community has started to re-sort of co-opted it on some level, has redefined it, saying you don't need gender dysphoria to be trans. Like these kinds of things are dangerous behavior. Indoctrinating, and I'm going to use that word indoctrination because I do see cult-like behavior. And this is why I get people pushing back on me in the community because I don't see what... I don't see a purpose in telling people to transition when you have no dysphoria. I don't see the purpose in saying to a young five-year-old, okay, maybe you're trans, let's get you on hormone blockers. These kinds of things scare me, especially when we don't have any any kind of you know long, long-term studies or understanding what long-term use of these things are. And so that because of these types of things in our community, we're so divided. And so I started to call myself a transsexual again. I used to call myself transgender, but now I went back to transsexual, which is a medical term of somebody who has gender dysphoria, diagnosed from a doctor, starts to use medical transitioning with hormonal therapy, and then gets surgery, whether or not, whatever that is, to move through the world. I did this to move through the world and not have to deal with my own community coming at me. So so that said, we are so divided in our thought process. And most of the pushback I see, like you, is from male to females, and a lot of them later in life transitioning. You run a legal marijuana company that caters to LGBT clients. Why does the LGBT community need or want a focused marijuana delivery company? First and foremost, I really am a community person and I really believe in giving back to the community that really helped me get to a space and I believe in the LGBT community. That said, the T is a little bit crazy right now, so I focus a lot on the LGB. But that said, I started Pride Wellness because you know people don't under- understand cannabis is now becoming legal. In Canada, I think it's fully legal. In the United States, we're you know, state to state thing. But that said, I see the future of cannabis as a very big multi-billion dollar industry. And so with that, I always see people in my community being left out on a lot of spaces uh, for many reasons. One of them just not being aware of what's happening around because we're concerned with just staying alive. So I know that people don't understand the story of cannabis here in the United States. And 30 years ago, HIV and AIDS was, you know, something that a pandemic on some level happened. And because of the gay male community, we got 
legalization of cannabis in a form called Marinol. And we were instrumental in legalizing cannabis 30 plus years ago with Marinol. That said, that is us in the game of legalizing cannabis. So I said, wait a minute, we're part of this. And I saw so many corporations coming in, dumping millions of dollars. I took my little my little piggy bank, opened it up, and I just started Pry Wellness five years ago because I create jobs for my community. I give back to the LGBT center every time you buy. So I wanted our sort of LGBT community to understand that we have opportunities here. We can create jobs. Also, it's very important that people understand the use of cannabis as a medication and not just as getting stoned and hanging out, but I really believe in it as a medication. I'm 30 years off of drugs and alcohol, and I use cannabis as a medication for sleep. And so I really wanted to also educate my community on the use of cannabis and how it can be better. You know, we, we have a lot of anxiety, depression, suicide in the LGBT community. I think cannabis can, on some level, not be used like a pharmaceutical. I'm not really big pharmace- pro-pharmaceutical. So I, you know, really want to teach people how to use cannabis in a way that's not so... I, I don't believe cannabis is addictive. Some people will will fight me on that, but I don't see it as that. So I see it as a better, more healthy alternative on some level. So you're living in Los Angeles, and my knowledge of L.A. mostly comes from watching the TV series Entourage. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, my, my favorite character was uh, Johnny Drama, and his backstory was that he'd appeared in this corny sci-fi time travel drama called Viking Quest. He'd go to these... Um, sort of nerd conventions and he would dress up in his Viking Quest outfit and people would ask him to replicate dialogue that from shows from years ago. Does that happen to you? <laughs> you, know, you, have, you haven't done porn in a, a couple of years now, but you know, I'm looking at these lists of films, uh, Buckback Mountain and Buck Off and Buck's Beaver and such. Do you ever get approached on a non-sequitur basis when you're doing human rights activism or you're representing your marijuana company and people are like, oh, I love that scene from... Oh, I see what you mean, from my movies. Of course, you know, Buckback Mountain, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you know, that this is the best thing about uh, pornography is the titles <laughs> of the movies. So Buckback Mountain was a no-brainer. And that is my number one film of all time. People love it. They always say, I love this scene here. I and I also did another movie with Titan, which is a very, and I was the first trans male actor to ever be in a mainstream gay pornography. And so that one was called Cirque Noir. And that one also, I get so many people telling me like it was the most amazing scene. It was like, so all the time people say it to me, even though I haven't done porn in forever, it's still something I think, I think on some level I'm an anomaly in pornography. And, you know, I created that genre and nobody had done it before me. So on some level, I'm this like sort of (laughs) person within the industry that people can, I'm the dirty little secret, to be honest with you. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high protein, low carb solution for people who love their cereal, but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low carb phase a few years back but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. 
After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash quillette and use the code quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now back to our podcast. According to Wikipedia, uh, you were the first trans man to be featured in an all-male film produced by a company specializing in gay male porn. And then the same year, you were in the first film sex scene between a trans woman and a trans man. So (laughs) (laughs) you really were a pioneer. At the time, was this seen as a political statement, what you were doing, or were you just making money? I'm going to be honest. No, I wanted to go into pornography to make a million dollars, right? Come on. That's why most people get into pornography. They just want to make a million dollars. So I thought, I got this great idea. I'm going to do this. Buck Angel, the man with the vagina. And like, everyone's going to, oh my God, the industry hated me. They hated me. They hated everything. The trans male community hated me. I I had so- Why why did they hate you? You were like the Rosa Parks of, maybe that's (laughs) that's too, okay, that's too much. But you were, you were a trailblazer. Well, you know, here's the situation. I was such a trailblazer blazer that nobody even had ever seen a naked body of a man like me. So even within the industry, which people have a misconception about pornography, the industry is so incredibly conservative. It's run by straight white dudes who are very conservative. And so when I came in, they were like, you're a freak. Get out of our face. We don't want to do this. But I found my niche in there, which was, you know, gay men were like my customer base, which again is a whole other thing that I still wrap my, try to wrap my head around, but they, they really came to my rescue on some level in the porn industry, the trans male uh, people were coming at me, telling me that it's disgusting what I'm doing. I got, so it wasn't until probably two years into it and really pushing and winning in the AVN award, which is like the Oscars of pornography. That was really the, where I established my space in the, in the industry. And that was in 2007. I mentioned this only because a lot of this discussion won't make sense unless we talk about it, is that you had top surgery, but not bottom surgery. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, we should definitely tell your listeners that. Yeah, so I chose to have top surgery, uh, you know, 23 years ago. Again, my top surgeon, uh, removing my breasts, had never done it before. So again, I was a guinea pig, an experiment. And then through that, I tried to, you know, really, I wanted to have a penis. It's not that I did not want to have a penis. I wanted to be a man. And what I wanted to have, I wanted to have to pee through, you know, to 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 have an erection, to have the things that a regular normal 
penis has. And it just didn't exist back in that day. They did this insane surgery where they took a tendon out of your forearm, connected it to your vagina, blah, 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 got skin. And then like 50% or 80% chance of losing your orgasm. There were all these sort of negatives and I chose not to do that. It was a very difficult, today I live fully free and happy about it. But back in the day, I was really just, you know, depressed around not being able to have that. So yeah. So, so for your listeners, I, I'm the man who walks around with, you know, a vagina and I'm p- perfectly okay with it. And that sort of was the basis of my pornography on some level. I think it was about a decade ago, you were invited to contribute to something called the Feminist Porn Book. Mm-hmm. This was a, a book, as I understand, by feminists mm-hmm. who were trying to understand how pornography and feminism interacted. Were you at the time thinking of yourself as a feminist? So yeah, I think of myself most definitely as a feminist. And I think I have thought of myself as a feminist pretty much from the beginning of my transition. I was born a female. And I lived as a female for half my life. And so on, on some level, I can't just turn my back on that. I tried to do that in the beginning of my transition, but I realized, you know, I have a connection to my space as a female. And I think it's very important that I continue to be a feminist in the male space. Being trans, one of the many reasons I think it's, it's difficult is that the way people describe you is always political. And I'm looking here at the way you're described on Wikipedia, and it says, Angel was born assigned female. Oh, God. In the, in the oh. San Fernando Valley, which is true. I mean, yeah, you were assigned female, but like, but that's a political statement. That's right. I, I don't like that language. I was born female. I was not assigned female. That, that's why I just made that noise for you, because that's this new jargon and lingo that to me is sort of connected to this cultist thing that's happening in the trans community. I was not assigned anything. I was born that way. So so th- this assigned at birth, assigned, it's trying to sort of derail biology as, as far as I'm concerned. So it's been 30 years since you transitioned. Is it still hard daily work to maintain that transition? Every week I have to inject testosterone in my body because I do not have testicles and I do not produce testosterone. But now it's just like, on some level I like to say, it's sort of like maybe being a diabetic where you have to use insulin. I just think of it as, as you know, my regimen at this point. Nope. I would say that, my, again, my life is amazing. I have nothing to complain about. It's why I really speak out now because I don't want people to think all trans people are wing nuts because we're not. We're, we're, we really just want to transition, be ourselves. Move. I've been doing this for years. Like I have so many people who just look at me, respect me outside of my community. Lots of cisgender, which I, again, really kind of don't like that word. But that said, so I live the most amazing life I've always dreamed to live. And that is only because I transitioned to be a male. That's it. Buck Angel is an American actor, producer, educator, and motivational speaker. Definitely not a wingnut. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate your time. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.